Thanks, Pauline. Hi, everyone. Good to see you all. As Josh said, yeah, this is my first time giving a sermon at church, so make sure those Bibles stay open, because for all you know, this might be a shocker. Now, I want to start with a disclaimer. I am a 22-year-old uni student, and I understand this automatically puts me as younger than most of you, and probably more arrogant and sinful. The only way I can stand up here and preach God's word faithfully is if he grants me grace and humility to do so. So please join me as I pray for myself to humbly stick to God's word and faithfully communicate what it has to say. Uh, Dear God, I am far from the most qualified to teach from your word today. Make me humble and faithful in my handling of your word. Help me to speak the truth in love. Amen. So something you need to know about me, and Josh alluded to this, is that recently I got married to a beautiful woman named Katie. Give us a wave. That's it. Uh, We've been married for just over four months, and in those four months, I've realized that while I thought I knew what Katie is like when we were dating, in some ways I'd only scratched the surface. It turns out there's a lot to learn about someone when you live with them that you don't see when you live apart. For a bit of context, for the three years before I married Katie, I lived in a share house with four other guys. Just want to make sure the right slide is up. Coming there, that's us. Uh, Most of us were uni students and we lived in a comfortable equilibrium of absolute mess. Our kitchen featured a never-ending pile of dishes that was always someone else's responsibility. We suffered a cockroach infestation that lasted about two years. It was so gross, like you'd go into the kitchen at night and turn the light on and just see layers and layers of cockroaches scurrying over every visible surface. Took two pest controllers to finally fix that. If you've ever seen the Taika Waititi movie, What We Do in the Shadows, our share house looked something like that, minus the vampirism and Kiwi accents. Living with the guys, I knew exactly what they were like and I knew how to respond to it. Just relax and join in on the mess. Now skip forward to four months into marrying Katie. I've gotten to know a bit more of what Katie's like. Firstly, she's not a boy, she is a girl. (laughs) Now I live in a tidy apartment where the dishes are cleaned, the floor is vacuumed, the surface is wiped and not a single cockroach in sight. Since marrying Katie, I've learned that she's way tidier than me. I thought I knew what she was like. I thought we were on a similar level. Turns out she has higher expectations. When we first moved into our apartment and I didn't really know what Katie was like, I made the huge mistake of trying to organize the books on the bookshelf. Terrible idea. Since I tried that, I've been corrected and the books have been organized and placed the right way by my lovely wife. And now I know what Katie's like. She's very different to my old housemates and to me. She is a lot neater and cares about how things look, which is great. Because I know what she's like, I can now respond to her better. Has this ever happened to you? Do you know what your friends, what your family are like? Do you know how to respond to them? Why don't we take this bigger? Do you know what God is like? Do you know how to respond to your maker? See, this is actually a really important question because knowing how to respond to a friend or a family member or your spouse, knowing what they're like so you can respond well, is important, but only has low to moderate consequences if you get it wrong. 
Katie might be annoyed at me if I stack books randomly rather than by genre and alphabetical order because I didn't know that was something she cared about. But if we don't know what God is like and we don't know how to respond to him, that's a bigger deal. And that's what we're going to see today in our passage. Jesus shares with us a parable that helps us know what God is like and how we should respond to him. And firstly, in point one, we're going to see that God loves his people. From verse nine. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Jesus here begins a parable. Now, if you're new here, you're probably thinking, what's a parable? Can this guy stop saying words that don't make any sense? A parable to you is basically a story with a true meaning. Jesus tells heaps of these throughout the gospel narratives, and they're like stories he uses to teach his listeners something. So Jesus is in the temple the week leading up to his death, and he is preaching and teaching using parables to two groups of people. The first group is the crowds of Israelites hanging on to his every word. The second is the leaders of the Israelites, the chief priests, sorry, chief priests, scribes and Pharisees who are getting more and more angry with every word he says. As the gospel of Luke has gone on, Luke has shown these guys to be more and more evil and more and more corrupt as the leaders of Israel. So what words does Jesus have to say to these two groups of people? Well, he tells them this parable, this story. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and then takes off for a bit. In those days, a super normal thing. That's how you did property management back then. You set up your farm or your vineyard, planted whatever you needed to and let it out to tenants who get to live there and farm your land for food and money and give you a cut of the harvest. So why does Jesus start by telling this story that sounds like it belongs in the Barossa Valley? While to us it might sound random, to the listeners, the Israelites and their leaders, they would have clued on to what Jesus was talking about immediately. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God's people, the people of Israel, are often referred to as his vineyard. Every listener there would have immediately thought of Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Or Isaiah 51, God's love song to Israel. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. God loves his vineyard. He planted Israel like a vine and watered it and grew it. He led it out to tenants. God loves his vineyard by putting it in the care of people who are meant to look after it well. So if the vineyard is representing God's people, Israel, in the parable, the tenants are like the leaders of God's people. They're the chief priests, elders, scribes, and Pharisees. God shows his love for his people by establishing them, planting them like a vineyard, and giving them leaders to care and look after them. Jesus reminds the listening Jews and their leaders of Israel's history using the vineyard image. They remember how God rescued them from Egypt, not because of anything they'd done, but because he loved them and had made promises to them. 
How good is it that God loves his people? How good is it that God is a God who cares for his people, who places leaders over his people to care for them under him? God loves his people. And I think that's exactly what you'd expect. God loves the people that he has made. You know, there might be times when it feels like God doesn't love you, but it's fundamental to God's character that he does. If you're feeling like God doesn't love you, like God doesn't care, remember that this is what God is like. God loves his people. What about, though, when the people God loves start to cause trouble for God? What is God like then? That brings us to point two, God has patient love ultimately shown in sending Jesus. So the vineyard has been planted, the tenants have settled in, what comes next makes heaps of sense. In verses 10 to 13, the man sends a servant to collect from the tenants what's owed to him, some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants don't respond well to this very reasonable request. Instead, they beat up the man's servant and send him back to his master empty-handed. Now, it would already be within the man's rights to be angry with his tenants. How offensive is that to the owner? He's let out his vineyard to these guys in what seems like a pretty sweet deal. And not only do they withhold what's owed, they beat up the guy who came and asked for it. But he doesn't get angry. Instead, he patiently sends another servant who's treated in a similar way. A third time he sends a servant, and a third time the tenants fail to be reasonable and give the man what he's owed as the owner of the vineyard. And this is exactly what happened in the story of God and Israel. After God had established his people, the Israelites, and set them up with leaders, he sent prophets and other messengers to ask of the leaders of Israel what was owed to him. In 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel reminds Saul, the king of Israel, that to obey is better than sacrifice. What is owed to God by the leaders of his people? Faithful obedience, both from themselves and from the whole nation of Israel. And Jesus sums up half of God's law as saying to love him with your whole heart and strength. God sent prophets to ask of the leaders of Israel not more than what is owed to him, but for his exact right, the fruit of his own vineyard, the obedience, worship, and love of the people he rescued and brought out of Egypt. But how were God's messengers treated? They are beat and sent away empty-handed. How awful. God asks only what is due to him, nothing more, from people whom he has given the biggest privilege ever, of being his people. And the leaders of Israel not only withhold all that, but also beat up and abuse the servants God sent to them. So what does God do? Just like in the man in the story, God is patient in his love to send another messenger and another. And time and time again, the leaders of Israel beat and abuse them and refuse God's just demands. And now we come to a question in the parable. The man asks, what shall I do? Wouldn't the fair response be to get angry? To treat the tenants the way they treated his servants and burn down the vineyard along with them? But look how the man responds. He acts in patient love 
in sending his beloved son. And this is exactly what God has done. God asks, what shall I do? And instead of getting angry at his people and their leaders, he sent his beloved son, the man Jesus, in the craziest example of patient love ever. Isn't it crazy? Can you imagine being the landlord of an apartment in Maroubra and your tenants are trashing the joint and refusing to pay their rent? Most people send in an eviction notice and a debt collector. Some massive guy is going to steal their TV. Apparently that's the scariest debt collector in England. Uh, you don't send your precious son to see if they will respect him. But God does. Because God has patient love for his people to send Jesus to them. God is patient. And this is really good news. While we live on this earth, it's never too late to come to him and ask for forgiveness. You may have lived an entire life of disobedience and feel like you could never be accepted by another person, let alone a perfect God. But he has patient love for you. You may have been in the church for years, call yourself a follower of Jesus, and yet struggle with an area of sin that you know is not worthy of God's people. Alcoholism, porn addiction, sex outside of marriage, lying, cheating, giving God anything other than what is owed to him. But God has patient love for you too. He sent Jesus so that you would turn to him, ask for his forgiveness and give him the obedience, love and worship that you owe him. What is God like? We've learned a bit more. God has patient love, ultimately shown in sending Jesus. But how well do you know God? Hopefully you know that God has patient love. Will God be patient forever, though? Well, we've seen God loves his people and that he has patient love, ultimately shown in sending Jesus. Now we'll see that God has fierce love, ultimately given in Jesus. Reading from Luke from verse 13. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The tenant's response to God's patient love in sending the son is to kill the son. Let me remind you of the context. The people listening to Jesus are the people of Israel and their leaders, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. They are the vineyard and the tenants. Jesus is the son. Jesus is telling the very people who will kill him that they are going to kill him. Now the tenants have committed the ultimate sin. They don't just kill the son, but they kill him to receive his inheritance. They want to be rulers in place of the owner. That just sounds crazy, right? But the Bible tells us 
It's exactly what we do. Now, we don't take the knife and kill Jesus, but the heart of sin is aiming to be in control of and to own what God is in control of and owns. The parable asks the question from before again. What then will the owner do to the tenants and to those of us who reject God's rule? It's a scary response, isn't it? This time he'll come fiercely and destroy them and give the vineyard to others. God shows us what he's like here. His patience doesn't last forever because he has fierce love for his people. He will not let the mismanagement of the Jewish leaders go unpunished. He destroys the bad tenants, casting them out of the vineyard. And the Jewish listeners can't believe it. The idea that God would destroy the tenants of his vineyard is shocking. I think the image in the parable has shifted slightly as we come into verse 16. So there's a strong connection now between the tenants and the leaders of Israel and the vineyard and the people of Israel. But now Jesus' analogy has grown broader And we'll see why we can know this in a second. So the tenants move on to represent not just the leaders of Israel, but all of God's people that fail to live for him and worship him. The vineyard is the title of God's people. To be a tenant of the vineyard now is to be a member of the kingdom of God. So the listening Israelites are shocked for two reasons. Firstly, They cannot imagine God ever casting any Israelite out of his kingdom. Secondly, they absolutely cannot imagine God giving the rights of citizenship in his kingdom, extending the definition of God's people to anyone other than the Israelites. How does Jesus respond to their disbelief? He reminds them that what he has said is nothing new. It's written throughout all their scriptures. And so he points them to Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, let's stop there. How does the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone relate to anything that has been said so far? I was confused when I first read this. I mean... A cornerstone is like this big brick that's set in the corner of a building that provides a base for the rest of the building. So questions, what slash who is the cornerstone and then who are the builders that rejected it? So I thought it might be helpful to go to Acts 4 to better understand why Jesus quotes this psalm. Recorded by the same man, Luke, in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter quotes the exact same psalm to the exact same audience only two months later, this time on the other side of the murder of the son. Let me read from verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Who is the cornerstone that Jesus says will crush those who it falls on? It's Jesus himself. And Peter shows us exactly who are the ones who are crushed by it. Unsurprisingly, it's the tenants. The chief priests and the Pharisees of Israel who killed Jesus. 
It's a heavy passage and a scary thought. Jesus, who was in the parable, the son sent in patient love, is now the cornerstone who crushes and breaks apart those who have rejected him. But I'm telling you that this shows that God is not just fierce, but that he fiercely loves his people in this. The next verse in Acts helps us even more. From verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, when God used Jesus to get rid of the old tenants, he passed it on to new ones through Jesus as well. He cares for and loves the faithful members of his people by removing the corrupted and evil leaders and members and creating a new people made up of all those who've been saved by Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, and so accepting him or rejecting him is what leads either to salvation and life or being broken and crushed. It's a scary fact if you've rejected him. But if you've accepted him, then there's salvation in no one else. God has fierce love for his people in Jesus. So how should we respond to this parable? How should we respond to God's patient and fierce love? Well, one great example of response comes in the next two verses in Luke. From verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Isn't this unsurprising? The tenants react to God's patient and fierce love exactly the way Jesus says they will. They don't repent, they don't turn back to God, and they don't accept the cornerstone. Rather, they reject it. And as Peter explains in no uncertain terms in Acts 4, so they are rejected by God, crushed by the cornerstone they turned against. How should you respond, though? Clearly, this was the wrong way. I've got two ways that I want you here today to respond to this parable. Firstly, you need to respond to the cornerstone one way or another, so accept it. Your alternative is to be like the high priests and scribes and reject Jesus and so be crushed by him. Remember, he has patient love. If you are someone who feels like you cannot come to God, I hope you heard in this talk that firstly, God is so patient. You can come to him. He wants you to come to him. And then I hope you heard that not only can you come to him, but you must. His fierce love draws a dividing line through all people. On one side, all who have accepted the cornerstone. On the other, all who have rejected it. Be on the right side. Secondly, I want to remind everyone of where the emphasis of the parable lands in terms of application. Who is Jesus really speaking to in the context? He's speaking to the leaders of God's people. 
The point of application, this point of application then, is more for anyone here who is a leader of God's people. Not just Rod or Josh either, although you two are definitely included. All Christians are called to lead in some way. To the kids' church leaders, the leaders of one-to-ones, growth group leaders, youth leaders, pastors, both lay and ordained, anyone else here in this room who leads, this parable especially, but the Bible as a whole, has always put a special emphasis on godliness of any leader or teacher of God's people. I'm speaking to myself here too. Take this warning from Jesus and remember, God fiercely loves his people. If you would be so bold as to shepherd them away from him, then you have the cornerstone to face. Don't lead his people astray. Lead them to love him more. So, what is God like? Well, God has patient and fierce love for his people. And both of these are shown ultimately by his son and sending him and in using him as the tool of his wrath against anyone who would reject him. Knowing more about what Katie is like has helped me respond to her better. I know that I should check with her before rearranging something in the apartment that she cares about. Hopefully, knowing more of what God is like can help you respond to him properly. To accept the cornerstone and to give God the love, praise and obedience owing to him. God's love is so good. He's so patient and fierce in his love for us. I'm going to pray and thank God for what he is like. Why don't you join me? Lord, thank you that you have patient and fierce love. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus in patience uh, and that you made him the cornerstone, stone that the builders rejected, to both crush and destroy those that disobey you, those that refuse to give you the fruit of your vineyard, and also to save all those who accept him. Lord, help us to respond to Jesus well. Lord, while your patient love still stands, help us to come to you and beg forgiveness. Lord, help us all to be on the right side of the cornerstone, having accepted him and having experienced salvation. In your son's name we pray these things. Amen.